If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to go ahead and uh, turn to chapter 41 of Genesis, Genesis chapter 41, and go ahead and be working towards that. We're going to be going through uh, the whole chapter, so you have to buckle up because there's a lot of verses in that chapter, okay? So we're going to be on this ride together, see what God's faithfulness uh, looks like in Genesis 41. As you're doing that, though, let me ask you a quick true or false statement, all right? True or false statement. Here it is, an individual's perspective about a situation can often be very different from the reality of that situation, true or false? Very true, okay, it doesn't take much to figure that out, right? If there's a a car accident that you come upon, there's three people involved, an officer comes on the scene to sort of assess the situation, they ask questions, very often you'll get three different accounts of what actually happened, right? You ever had the unfortunate incident of being in that, in that situation? Well, there was a dog that came out in the road. Well, she cut me off. Well, he hit his brakes too soon. That's why I did this, right? Like, it's depending on that individual's perspective, gives a picture to them of what really happened in that situation. It's very different, though, the reality of what actually did happen. I have another example of how perspective uh, sometimes it's different than reality. Uh, this goes to just in my own home, just so you know, uh, that Christmas season is a very big season in our home, as it is for many of you I know. But one thing that distinguishes it specifically in our home, it's, it's really the only the time of year, the only time of year we decorate anything in our house, okay? That's just how it, maybe you decorate for like every season in your home. That's not how we roll, okay? We put all of our decoration budget into the Christmas decorations. I'm talking lights on the outside. I'm talking like every room's got like stuff in it. It's a lot of fun, but here's the thing. It takes a lot of work to put up all these decorations. Got to store these things in different places in the attic and stuff like that. And so every year it takes me like two or three days to get all this stuff out and set it all up, and then it takes me another two or three days to put it all back away at the end. And I don't really have that big of a house, so it's, it's a lot of decorations. Think with me here. So one year, a couple years ago, Christmas was over. I, had, I was tired. I'd put all the decorations in the boxes, but I wasn't quite ready to go up into the attic yet, okay? You know how that is. Like, it's just like, I'll do that tomorrow. So I put the boxes of the decorations in the hallway outside of our bedroom, all right? My wife and I's bedroom. Put them right outside the hallway and left the door open. So there's the boxes right there. All right, I want you to hold with me. Some of you already know where we're going with this. But like in the middle of the night, all right, because these sort of things only happen in the middle of the night. Never like right as soon as you're in bed. In the middle of the night, when I'm at that really sweet spot, you know, of sleep where you're having like really crazy dreams and you know this is going to be really good. And you're like so sound asleep. In the middle of that, my wonderful wife, sits stock straight up in bed and points in the hallway and screams with a scream like you've never heard in your life and you never want to hear again. You know what I'm talking about, that kind of scream that like a part of you dies on the inside and you're like, I'm not sure if I can cope after that. That kind of scream, like what just happened? And she's screaming, there's an intruder, someone in her house, right? I don't know what she said, but it's just kind of like, yeah, you know? And so what do I do in the middle of my stupor? I jump out of the bed and just run headlong into whatever is in the hallway. I can't tell what it is, all right? When you're half asleep, you're not like evaluating what's happening there. You just hear your wife screaming and pointing at something, and there's a shape there. And so I ran at that thing headlong, and I want you to envision bowling ball and bowling pins, okay? That is what happened in that scenario. There's three boxes and one mark right into that stack of boxes, and everything goes everywhere, decorations, boxes all over the place. I don't, still don't think I was under, like, comprehending what had just happened you know, in that moment. So I'm sort of like getting up, stumbling around, going back to the bed, and, and I think like, she might have muffled like, sorry, and then turned over and went to sleep. 
like, what just happened? You know, very confusing. I mean, obviously, like, her perspective of what was happening in that moment was very, very different than reality. Now, here's the thing. I did get some brownie points out of that because I was like, now, you, you remember this day. You saw what happened when there was a supposed threat in our home. What did I do? I hopped out of that bed and I attacked that thing head on, all right? So just for future reference, I get husband points for that one. And that's how I'm going to respond in the future. But yeah, her perspective of what was happening in that was very different, very different than the reality. And I think that's, 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 the, that's the truth for what, you know, that's what perspective is to us. It's very limited, right, to our individual experience. It's personalized to us. The problem with that is, is that we get in trouble when we start judging from our perspective on how effectively God is doing his job. When from our perspective, we're making statements about how effective God is and what he's doing based off of our limited perspective. You know, when there's a conflict between what God has said is true, and how I feel, we tend to go with our gut, right? Because that's our experience. Experience has dictated this to me, so we're comfortable with that. But why? Why do we do that? I want to show you this chart. Some of you just got really excited when you saw a line chart up there. You accountant people, you're like, yes! I love charts, okay? Uh, I realize that the, uh, the text is small there. That's okay. I'm going to walk you through this. I just took the, took the liberty of plotting out and don't ask me what the values are for these, okay? Don't, just don't, don't worry about that. So some of the major events that have happened in Joseph's life so far, all right? Just for a point of illustration, kind of on the far left there, he was born into Israel's family. He has a dad that loves him, brothers. He feels pretty good. He's the chosen son. You kind of move up to that next event. Dad gives him that coat, you know, and he gives him a measure of authority in the home. And his brothers don't like that. Obviously, that leads to the next point. He's thrown into that pit, sort of a low point, we would say. Uh, in his life, literally a low point, and then sold as a slave, right? That would maybe take it even a step further. Maybe it's sort of a slight bump up to say that he sold to Potiphar. I mean, honestly, there are probably worse places he could have been, he could have served, right? I think Potiphar was sort of a, a, a decent guy from the sound of it, so maybe a slight improvement. Then Potiphar's like, hey, this guy's good stuff. He's getting, getting work done. I'm going to give him more responsibility. So he makes him like the manager of his home. Well, then his wife accuses him falsely, you know, trying to, uh, trying to attack her. And so he gets thrown into prison. And I have another low spot there. Then the prison, the, the warden's like, hey, this, this guy is all right. I'm going to make him in charge of the other prisoners. So he gets a little promotion there. And then he has this, we talked about this last week. These two guys came in the prison, the cupbearer and the baker. They had some crazy dreams. Joseph was there. And, and by God's will, he interpreted the dreams to them and told them what was going to happen. And the baker was hanged three days later. His dream came true. And the cupbearer's dream came true three days later as well. But Joseph told him, hey, man, when you leave this place, put in a good word for me with Pharaoh. Tell someone that I'm in here, okay? I don't, I don't want to be in here. I was taken from my home. Tell someone that I'm here, all right? So he has a moment. Maybe there's like a, an inkling of hope, all right? Maybe this is what God is going to do in this situation, and of course, as, we've, as we read last week, and what we're going to read in just a minute, the cupbearer forgot completely about Joseph, right? That's for a span of two years, that his name never came up before him. So maybe that's like an all-time low, right, in his life. Now, I know some of you are sitting there, and you're like, but I know what's going to happen next on the chart. Like, you're already plotting, like, where that, where that next, like, little line is going to go, right? Because you're like, I know the rest of the story. I know what's going to happen. But I want to challenge you, though, on something. I'm challenging you on something. This, this, is a, this is a dangerous thing to do. See, this is limited by only the events that Joseph can see in his life so far, right? It's very limited. It's a limited perspective. And that's the problem is that you and I tend to see 
the events that happen in our life on sort of a scale of like good things or bad things. You know, things that I feel blessed in and things that are, are hardships in my life, things that are difficult to get through. And so we sort of hope that if I start out okay, maybe by the end of it, there'll be some ups and downs in there, but hopefully by the end it'll be on top, right? So we value our life on this sort of scale of good things and bad things. But as we're going to see, what God is teaching Joseph in this time was well, not about like just hang on through the bad stuff because the good stuff's going to come on the other end. It's about what he was teaching him through the whole thing. That's what Joseph saw. Joseph's perspective was not just limited to the events that were happening in his life, but the reality of what God was doing. How did he learn that, though? How did he learn that reality? How did he learn in the midst of hardship to work hard for his masters, even though he hated being a slave? What put that in him? Why did he not just, when he was in prison, just fall into despair? And when the cupbearer and the baker came into his life, he just told him to get lost or he kept his mouth shut. What prompted him to keep doing what he was doing in the midst of that? It wasn't coming from just within, right? There was some character there. but He was holding on to something much more significant. God was teaching him something. How did he learn it? This is through a a gracious God-given discipline that we call patience. Patience is, we often use that just a substitute for the word Waiting. All right, but patience is, is broader than just waiting, right? Because when I'm being patient for something, I'm waiting for something to happen, right? It's, it's an expectant waiting, right? When I go to the doctor's office and I put my name down on the list to say that I'm here, I'm patiently waiting for my name to be called because I'm going to go somewhere at some point when it happens. It's, it's looking ahead. It's not looking at the events of my life and judging my worth on those and hoping that if I roll the dice that things are going to work out good the next time something comes, It's consistency across the board. This is God's reality, and I'm waiting on him to do his thing. And so we're talking about godly patience this morning. I'm going to give you a discipline of this, uh, give you a definition of this. Godly patience is the daily discipline of choosing the reality of God's purposes over my perceptions of them. I'll read that again. It's kind of long. Godly patience is the daily discipline of choosing the reality of God's purposes over my perceptions of them, because why? We have such a limited perception of what God is doing. Why do we say it's a discipline? Well, that implies that it, it's going to take work. It's a process. I don't think 17-year-old Joseph really understood what it meant to be patient and to wait upon the Lord. Not quite yet. He knew the Lord's character, but he learned that progressively, right? It trained him in that. The Bible speaks a lot about patience, about godly patience and waiting on the Lord. Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31 is quoted a lot of times, right? Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength, run and not be weary, and they will walk and not faint. Lamentations 3 says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of of the Lord. This is not passive waiting. This is a discipline to wait and to see God respond. So what is the effect, this godly patience that we define here, what is the effect of that in Joseph's life? I guarantee as we read this chapter, it's, it's not the first thing that you're thinking, all right? It's not, the, it's not the obvious thing that happens. That That's not the fruit of the waiting, all right? There's some other things going on in Joseph's life, all right? So let's look into Genesis chapter 41, and I'm just going to tell you in advance 
We're going to run through this thing really fast, okay? We're not going to read all the verses. And any gaps there that are, that are left out that I'm not able to read, I'm going to trust you to do your homework and, uh, and go back in there and read that. Um, I'm going to try to cover the, the main things that we need to understand what is happening here. So chapter 41, verse number 1, read this with me. After two whole years, can't, can't overemphasize how significant that timeline is, Pharaoh dreamed he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and he called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Okay, so here's the setup. Let's kind of put a pin in Joseph for now. He's, he's in prison. He's been in prison for two years since the cupbearer left. All right, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has had a, a nightmarish dream. He had two dreams the, uh, the night before that really just kind of messed with his head, all right? So he has this first dream of cows coming up out of the Nile River, and then seven ugly cows coming up behind them and eating the healthy ones. Now, I don't know about you, but like, that's kind of an odd thing to think about, right? A cow eating another cow. I mean, cows don't normally eat meat, in case you didn't know that. Um, if you haven't had a lot of experience around cows, that may not seem odd to you. I've spent some time around cows, and I'm telling you, that would kind of freak me out if I saw a little scrawny cow gnawing on a big fat cow. You know, that'd be a little weird, all right? So that's going on. You know, seven cows eaten up by the other cows. And then the second dream, so he, you know, he wakes up from the first, and he's all sweaty and kind of wondering what that was. He, had, he has the second dream, and now some grain comes up, healthy-looking grain, and then some, like, ratty-looking grain comes up behind it, and then eats it up. Now, don't ask me to explain how grain eats grain. I don't know how that works, okay? Um, somehow, this plant devoured that plant and made it go away. Can we agree on that? All right, so Pharaoh wakes up from this dream, and he's troubled by it. Now, I don't think he was troubled because it was a weird dream, although it definitely was. Okay, I don't think he was kind of like, man... <laughs> What did I eat last night? That was, that was, uh, I'll stay away from that again, you're right? I don't mess with that anymore. No, I don't think it was that. He was troubled because Pharaoh sensed this is something really significant, right? This is something was in this dream felt differently than other dreams that I've had. Something big is happening here. So what does he do? He calls all of his wise men. He calls all of his magicians in. And these magicians, by the way, you know, many of them uh, had relationships with evil spirits. You know, they were pagan, you know, pagan worshipers of these evil spirits. So they were trying to divine or figure out what could this dream mean? What would be the deeper meaning of these dreams that Pharaoh had? And so he's asking them, what is it, guys? You know, here's the dream. What happened? You know, and they can't quite figure it out. It says there was none that could interpret them to Pharaoh. And you know, not one of them was going to suggest that maybe Pharaoh just needed to get over it, right? Like, it was a big deal. And this is the king of Egypt saying this. So, like, they're like, this is a problem, you know, we could actually be killed for this. You know, this is sort of what we're here for, to tell Pharaoh these things. And so they're sort of freaking out. Pharaoh is not satisfied with that answer. So let's keep reading here. And here we have our good friend, Mr. Opportunity, the chief cupbearer. Chief cupbearer, in verse 9, said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. Well, convenient for you. Uh, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, 
We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Okay, so I call him Mr. Opportunity, the chief cupbearer. I mean, I had to think like he didn't completely forget about Joseph, right? I mean, he remembered that experience. You know, he didn't forget about that experience. He just didn't tell anyone, okay? He got out and he was like, done. I'm back into my role, all right? Taking care of the Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh's right-hand man. And so when he sees, oh, all of Pharaoh's really smart guys can't figure this thing out, I might have a little angle that's going to get Pharaoh to like me even more. Hey, Pharaoh, by the way, I was thinking about, you know that time when I was, yeah, I was real, things were really bad, right? Like I, I was in the wrong, right? I met this guy, Joseph, and he told me the dream, he told me an interpretation of the dream that I had, and I think you should meet him. I think you need to meet this guy, right? And he calls him, a young Hebrew was there with us, verse 12. He interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. You know what he conveniently left out in that statement? That Joseph told them the whole time that it wasn't him that was doing it, that it was God that was doing it. Now, I think that was on purpose. You know why? Because in ancient Egypt, who was God? Pharaoh was God, right? There's a whole host of other little gods around there too, but Pharaoh was the supreme God in that culture. So you wouldn't want to tell Pharaoh, hey, um, this Hebrew guy worships a different God. He actually knows more about what's going on than you do. Like that would not be a good play for the cupbearer. So he's like, hey, I know a guy... I don't know what's going on there, but he interprets dreams. I think you should talk to him, right? So he sort of throws that out there. So what does Pharaoh do? Verse number 14, obviously Pharaoh sent and called him, brought him forward. It says he shaved himself. That's a big deal. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. And he changed his clothes and he went in before Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh said, I have a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. Verse 15, I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. But look at Joseph's response. Verse 16, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. See, Joseph doesn't hesitate for one minute because he recognizes something in the pattern of these dreams. You know, Pharaoh's going to lay it out in a second. God's already demonstrated to Joseph through dreams what he's going to do. He's already given him a plan and a, and a vision for what's going to happen in his life. Joseph recognizes God is up to something. He's going to tell us what's happening here. It's not me. It's not my ability. This is what God is doing. And so he, he proceeds to, uh, Pharaoh proceeds to tell him the dream there in verse number 17. I'm not going to read that for sake of time because it's a, a repeat of what we already read. He tells Joseph the dream. And then Joseph says in verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven good cows are seven years. Seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows are seven years. The seven empty ears are seven years of famine. As I told you, Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will become seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all of the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will consume the land. I want to look at verse 32. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Okay, so he says, hey, Pharaoh, here's the meaning of your dream. The cows represent years. The grain represents years. There's going to be seven great years. There's going to be so much abundance in the land in these seven years. It's going to be more than you've ever seen before. And then right on the heels of that seven years, there's going to be another seven years. It's going to make it look like that first seven never even happened. It's going to be so severe. It's going to literally consume 
the land. Now, you think Pharaoh's probably not feeling too great uh, in this moment about this, this revelation of this dream, right? He knew it was weighty. He may not have had an idea how weighty it was. So then Joseph goes a step further, and he gives him some advice. He says in verse 33, Let Pharaoh now select a discerning and a wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And let him proceed to appoint overseers and take one-fifth of the produce of the land during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. And let them keep it that the food will be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So Joseph's like, hey, listen, this is what I think you need to do. You need to get someone that's wise and discerning, It's going to make good choices here, and set them over this, and get yourself some overseers in the land, gather up what you can during these plentiful years, and save some of it aside. That's basic logic, right? Like, if you know that there's a shortage coming up, and you've got warning about that, you'd sort of store up a bunch of stuff, right? Wise and discerning, a wise and discerning man. But let me ask you this. How many other wise and discerning men were in that room at that point, based off of Pharaoh's experience? He's not really got a lot to pick from, right? Like all of his best guys were there in the courtroom, the guys that he trusted the most. They're kind of like, oh, I don't know what that means. And so when, when Joseph is saying this, make no mistake, I don't think Joseph, I don't think Joseph was, trying, was vying for a job here, okay? I don't think he was kind of like, oh, I think you should pick a wise, discerning, Hebrew man who interprets dreams, I really don't think that was what he was going for, okay? Because remember, where, where does Joseph want to be? Where does he want to be? He wants to be with his father. He wants to be with his family. He was taken from that. He said that as much in the prison. I was taken from my home. He's not looking to cash in on an opportunity in Pharaoh's court, let alone the fact that now he knows seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. He does some short math, and he's like, hmm, 14 years from this day, and I'm 30 years old, so that would make me 44? I don't think he's sitting there saying, ooh, pick me. He's saying what God wanted him to say. But Pharaoh's obviously like, I don't really see that I have any other option. And by the way, since I'm Pharaoh, you don't have any other option either. And so it says that this proposal pleased Pharaoh, verse 37. And he said, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? I mean, even Pharaoh, a pagan king, a guy that thought that he himself was God, recognized there's something different about this man, Joseph, than any other people that I have surrounded myself, that I have ever seen. This guy has something that none of them have. And so it's an obvious choice from his standpoint. Well, since you mentioned that, Joseph, I think you're the guy. I don't think he pulled him aside and was like, hey, Joe, come here. I've got a business proposition for you. How would you like to be Number two in Egypt. I mean, here's the benefit package that goes along with that. Now, he's Pharaoh, right? So he just says, all right, you're the guy. And Joseph's just kind of like, I'm the guy, okay? So what does Pharaoh do? Uh, Look there at verse uh, number 42. He took the the ring off his hand. He put it on Joseph's. That's a symbol of authority. Clothed him in garments of fine linen. Put a gold chain on his neck. Made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. He set him over the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh, uh, in verse number 45, he called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah That's an amazing name right there. Um, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. So he's given him a new name, new title, new symbols of authority. He had to shave his beard off already. We know that. That was a big deal, actually, to Joseph, not just because he was a prisoner coming out of jail. He's a Hebrew, all right? That beard was a symbol of, of his identity, 
And so when he had to shave that thing off, he was losing a part. One of the few things that linked him to his family from before, even taking off that beard. Now, I, I just shaved my beard recently. Honestly, I wasn't that attached to it, you know? That's a much bigger deal to him. He was, this guy was having his identity taken away from him even more than he had before, shaving his beard. He's, he's been given a new name. His Hebrew name is not what he's called by anymore, although it's a lot easier to say. Um, his wife is an Egyptian, now, this is actually a big deal as well for God's people. God had told him to marry within their own people. And here he has married an Egyptian woman, has taken her as his wife, who's sort of forced upon him as an arranged marriage, you know, with an influential priest. And then Joseph went out in, over Egypt. Now, here's the thing is that many of us at that point are like, all right, roll credits, stop the movie. This is, where, this is, what, this is what everything was leading up to, right? Like this is Joseph's big break. He finally got all of this power, all of this authority. You know, God has, has been faithful to him. He pulled him, and I've heard this subtitle used for this passage in scripture, I don't know how many times, you know, from, from pit to palace, right? From pit to palace, God has brought him from the lowest point to the highest point. But let me ask you something. Did you ever ask Joseph maybe what he thought about what was happening in that moment? Our, our uh, mixed-up brain, maybe, I don't know, it's an American thing, it's like a, a modern-day thing, but like we, we, we judge everything, again, like on a scale, like bad things, good things, bad things, good things, hopefully it ends up good. It's like, oh, Joseph got a promotion, right? He's not a prisoner anymore, for sure, that's an exciting thing, right? And don't, don't get me wrong, I think it was probably a huge upgrade, like his day-to-day life, right? But he no more wanted to be second in command of Egypt than he wanted to be in the bottom of that prison cell. He wanted to be with his family. He wanted to be with his people. That's what he desired. He wanted to be worshiping the Lord together with them, enjoying the identity of being God's people. That's what he desired most of all. When Pharaoh said, you're going to do this, I don't think he was like, yes. I think he was kind of like, I'm never going to get home, am I? 14 more years? Yeah, I'm surrounded with luxury got houses all the way up and down the Nile River. I can go down and visit, you know, a different house if I want to. I've got people that work under me. I got respect. I've got a wife. That's not what I want the most though. He he essentially traded one form of slavery for a different one. He had the second in the command, the most power of anyone in the land other than Pharaoh, and the one thing he had did not have the power to do was to leave and go be with his family. You think about that. We're so quick to like give, want to give Joseph a high five. Yeah, man, you finally arrived. Right? God didn't leave you, you know, in the prison. He brought you out of the Pharaoh. And, and that is amazing. Or that is a thing that only God can do. Right? God is sovereign. He works in, in all kinds of unusual ways. And God set that up on purpose. But it wasn't to give Joseph a big payoff in being second in command of Egypt. It was the same reason that God had been working the whole time which was to fulfill his promises to his people. Joseph understood that. Joseph didn't see this as his big break. Joseph, Joseph didn't operate on the concept of you know, karma. You, know, you do bad things, bad things happen to you. You do good things, good things happen. Man, God, I was good. And all those bad times that came my way, I, I kept doing what I was supposed to do. I was faithful, God. This is finally the, the dessert that I get, the reward that I get from being faithful, right? That's not how he saw that. Joseph just saw this as another opportunity to trust what God had a plan, you know, to, to put God's reality over his perspective. Because his perspective could have been very, you know, 
willing to just assume that identity as Egyptian and to sort of fade into the backgrounds of history. But he was holding on to the promise that God said he was going to make my great, when he talked to my great granddaddy Abraham and told him he was going to make a nation out of him. He was still holding on to that promise. You know, he knew his granddad Isaac had, God had told him the same thing. He knew his dad Jacob told him the same thing. In fact, his dad had wrestled God himself. He knew who God was. He knew what God's promises were. He's still holding on to that. He's looking forward to that. This is just another part, an opportunity along the way to demonstrate that that's what's the most important. So that wasn't, we often stop there and we're like, is that the, that's the point of Joseph's story, right? Like he made it big. It's like another little dot on that line chart that we looked. We're like, ah, oh, see? It worked out. It's that human perspective creeping in again, right? What does Joseph do? He's not, he's not maybe the super, super thrilled about his situation. Probably not crazy about the fact that he's going to be there another 14 years. But he gets to work, right? He, he doesn't just do a little bit. He does the best job that he can. And it looks like God has, has blessed him in abundance. You know, in that verse number 46 to 49 talks about how uh, in those plentiful years, it, it was exactly what God had said. And, and Joseph, you know, managed it well. And, not, and so much so that there was so much grain, it says it couldn't be measured, verse 49. It's impossible. God blessed the fruit of Joseph's hands as he was faithful in the midst of that. Then we have this amazing little picture, though, that comes up of what's really going on in Joseph's heart and the fruit. This is where the fruit of all of that patience, all of that waiting with expectance, this is where it's revealed to us what was happening in Joseph's heart. And I think this is what we can take away from it here today as well. Look at verse number 50. I told you it's a long chapter. You guys are doing pretty good, though. I'll give you credit on that. Verse number 50, before the year of famine came, all right, so maybe somewhere around in like 35, 36, somewhere in there, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. I wonder if he had to say that whole name every time he addressed her. It's a lot. Um, sorry. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all of my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. All right, so Joseph has, give, has two sons, and these the two sons and the names that he's chosen give us a picture into the inside of what Joseph has gained through this season of patience in his life. All right, so this first one, Manasseh. Manasseh. Uh, well, I should say first and foremost, these are, by the way, these are Hebrew names. That's the first significant thing. These are not Egyptian names. Manasseh and Ephraim, you're like, I don't, couldn't tell the difference. Take my word for it. These are Hebrew names. All right, so right out of the gate, Joseph, he has a new name. He has a new Egyptian wife. He's second in command over Egypt. When he has kids, in all likelihood, like you would expect, he's just going to sort of like continue on with the Egyptian thing, right? No. He gives them Hebrew names. Why? Why would he do that? His identity is still tied to the promises that God made to him at the beginning. His identity is still associated with his father and with his family. And so while he can't control any of the other things that are happening around him that give credit to that, one thing he does have the power, and every parent gets to have the ability to do, is he can name his kids, right? He's thinking about their future. They're going to have the identity that I have in the Lord. So he calls this first one Manasseh. And what does Manasseh mean? It literally means forget. God has made me forget all of my hardship in all of my father's house. I'm going to make sure I clarify. He's not saying, 
I've forgotten about who my family is, right? He's saying all of the hardship that came out of that situation. Uh, he, he's gotten to a point through this time, this patience has, has brought fruit in him to the, be able to forgive and to let go of what happened, all right? Not in some sort of like, you know, Princess Elsa way where you go out in the field and sing about it, okay? This is like literally like letting go, like I don't have to own this anymore. This is not my identity that I was a guy that had it good and then I was brought into the pit and sold into slavery. See, he didn't own that as, as his identity. He, his identity was wrapped in the promises of God that he made to him at the beginning. Those dreams that he, that he saw that God was gonna use him, that's where his identity was lying. It's like, Manasseh, God, you've made me let go of these hardships and seeing those were part of your plan to bring me where I am today. Those are not my identity. You've made me to forget those things, right? And then he has Ephraim, right? And that literally means fruitful. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This is interesting. This gives further credence to the fact that maybe where Joseph's heart is in the whole Egypt thing. Where is, where is Ephraim born? Egypt, Right? God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph considers Egypt to be the land of his affliction, not the land where I got my big promotion, not the land where everything came together and I was so happy and I had everything that I wanted. No, he still sees like I'm here. God's been blessing the work that I've been doing, but this is, this is, my, this is my affliction. This is the land of my affliction. This is not where I want to be right in this moment. Egypt was not... The fruitfulness, what happened in Pharaoh's court was not the fruitfulness, is what God was doing in Joseph's heart to affirm that he had not forgotten him, that he was working behind the scenes. And, and further than that, when he says fruitful, that's not just talking about like he has blessings or he had, he had a good fruit from his work and like all that grain came in. It's actually much more personal than that. This is actually talking about the fact that Joseph even has sons, like being fruitful and like having offspring. Do you know why that's a big deal to Joseph? Remember that promise we said about the great-granddaddy Abraham to be a father of a great nation. Joseph knew that that was going to happen through his brothers, his dad. That was, that was that family, right? I think he was at a point where he wondered during those years of hardship, those years away from home, am I going to get to have any part in that promise? Am I going to get to see a next generation come, you know, from me that's going to be a part of that promise? And so when Ephraim was born and Manasseh was born, he's crying maybe like every dad cries when their child is born, but maybe for a completely different reason because he's like, you didn't forget me, Lord. I'm going to have a part in the promise that you made to me. My family is going to be a part of that great nation that Abraham was promised, God. And so he's weeping. You've made me fruitful in a time where I thought there was no way that could happen. His heart is rejoicing in that God is keeping that promise, not that God is elevating him into a different socioeconomical level, that God has remained faithful for all that. You think about all the things that Joseph went through. I, I mean, it blows my mind right, that he could go through that. And I'm not saying he didn't have bad days, right? It was hard. That he could maintain throughout all of those times that my focus is only on what God is, God is going to keep his promise that he made to me at the beginning. And I don't know how he's going to do it yet, but I believe that he is. That's the reality that I'm going to live in. I'm going to discipline myself to keep that as my reality and not get so bogged down in the details of what's happening today in my life because those things change very quickly. Yesterday I was in a pit. And now I'm before a king. God is not limited 
by his power. He has me here for a reason because he's going to keep his promise. He has made me fruitful. And Joseph obviously has a different perspective than we do at times, right? I think many of us here today would take that Pharaoh job in a skinny minute. (laughs) Pick me, Pharaoh. I'm happy to do that, all right? Because we're so wrapped up in like the, the events of our life being in our identity, right? I, this was good, but man, this really, really hurt. And for some of us, we're stuck. We're stuck in that. Like, I don't think, I don't see how things can ever turn around. Because all we're thinking about is what's happening to us. When God is doing so much, something so much bigger than what's just happening in our life. You know, Joseph wasn't seeing bad things and good things. You know what he was seeing? He was seeing God things. He was seeing that God who's a loving God, a God who is a redeemer, can take even these difficult situations that are in my life and he can use them to accomplish his purpose and for my good. It was teaching him patience as he's waiting. The promise is coming. The promise is coming. Every day he's in that prison. Every day after that cupbearer left, he told him he was going to remember him. The promise is coming. When there's no light of it, the promise is coming. That's what he held on to. That patience brought out that fruit in him. James 1, 4 says, Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Patience is a process. It's a discipline. It's not something that we want to do. It's not something we want to change our perspective. We want to, it's not that we want to believe that God is in control, that he is sovereign. We don't. We're, we're waiting for the next point on our map to drop, and we're hoping that it's a good one this time. But Joseph found fruit in the midst of that through patience. And I think there's three things for us real quick. Three fruits of godly patience. All right, what are the fruits of godly patience? This is the first one. I can be at peace with my past. Some of you guys are like, the note writer people are like, yes, finally, I can write something down. I can be at peace with my past. All right, Joseph, you know, Manasseh. Some of you guys today need to write that thing on your hand. I can write, the, write the name Manasseh on your hand, okay? Uh, that's what you need to remember today. Your life is not defined by the hardships that have happened in it. That's not what was true for Joseph. Joseph didn't sit back and complain and identify, well, you know, I was doing really great until this happened, and that sort of took all the steam out of my engine. And he was looking ahead to God's reality, that the promise is coming I can be at peace with my past. He was able to forgive his brothers, and he's going to have a chance to do that pretty soon, too, in person, right? He was able to kind of move past that. He refused to let those things be his identity. He wanted God's purposes to be his identity. But it took time, didn't it? It was, it was a fruit of patience. It was discipline. It was looking ahead. You know, Manasseh, forgetting my hardship, and we need to remember that today. You know, is there hurt or injury or pain maybe in your past that you brought here today that you're holding on to, and it's keeping you from looking clearly at what God's plans are in your life? Are you sort of wrapped up in that moment of time? Or maybe it's today, and you're like, I'm in the middle of something right now, and all, all you can think about is that hardship. It's just occupying every space of your moment. You recognize, like, that God has something going on that's much bigger than this situation, That's what the story of Joseph is for us to see. God has purposes that extend far beyond our start and our finish. And he's good in all of them. We can have peace with knowing that this hardship is not my identity. My identity is in him if I put faith in him. That's the first fruit. The second fruit is I can see blessing in my affliction. I can see or I can find blessing in the midst of of my affliction. Ephraim's name meant that I'm fruitful in the land of my affliction, even in the midst of of this hardship that has happened in my life. 
Good things can come out of that as I am submitted to God's will in my life, as I'm looking for how he has shown up. Do you do, I, I'm bad about doing this. I am bad about remembering the faithfulness of God in the everyday things that he does in my life. So bad, so I had to make a commitment. You know, last year I started doing this. I started writing down in, in my journal uh, when I got answers to prayer. And he's like, that's a really basic thing to do, Pastor Mark. Well, you know, sometimes you need to like go back to the basics to write down, all right, I prayed about this. God responded in this way. And I made a running list of these things. And so that when I came to a point where something hard was happening, where maybe like you, my mind was so occupied with my affliction, I couldn't see the forest for the trees. And what did I do? I grabbed my journal, and I opened it up, and I looked down at the list. These are the ways that God has been faithful in this season. There's blessing in the middle of that season. That blessing, most first and foremost, is what is doing to me in my heart to have to trust Him. Even though I can't see what the next point on that line chart is, I'm trusting that He's got a plan and that He's in charge of that, and He's going to keep His promises to me. That patience also gives us a sensitivity to what's most important. Oftentimes during hardship, sort of have the, the superfluous things pruned away. And the things that are most important are revealed to us in that time. That patience gives me a confidence that's outside of myself. I still serve the same God that moves prisoners to king's courts. The same God. Are you seeing his faithfulness as you exercise patience? In this season, can you see blessing in the midst of your affliction? This is the last one. I can have hope away from home. I can have hope away from home. You know, Joseph had a lot at his disposal, didn't he? A lot of power, a lot of authority, a lot of influence. But the one thing that he wanted most, to be with his family, to be with his people, he couldn't have it. And so he had to wait. To be patient. And we won't spoil the ending for him because he doesn't know yet the home is actually going to come to him, which is amazing. But just like that, and Jesus, before he left this earth, he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again. He promised to come and collect us and bring us home, right? We're in this land of affliction. This world is a land of affliction. It's not functioning the way that it's supposed to. We see that. We feel the effects of that. We feel the effects of sin in our life and the effects of other people's sin in our life. This is a land of affliction. It's a land of hardship. That's why we're so consumed with the ups and downs. We're hoping it won't be as hard if this thing happens. God's like, stay with me. I'm going to keep my promise to you. I sent my son so that death and sin would be defeated once and for all. If you believe and have taken and owned that as Jesus as your Savior, then you have the hope and the promise that home is coming back to you someday in the not-too-distant future, I imagine. That he's going to return and take us to be with him. But for now, we wait and we hope. And we look forward to that day that is coming. Joseph's hope wasn't in making it big in Egypt but in pleasing the one who could bring him home. So let me ask you today, have you trusted Jesus today? Is he your hope this morning? Is he your reason for living? Are you in the midst, I don't know what you brought in today, the midst of hardship or affliction today, and you confess, like, that's all I'm thinking about right now. You take a moment and pray and ask the Lord 
to help you stop looking at your life with such a narrow perspective, but to give you his eyes to see that he he has remained faithful the entire time and his promises still stand. And you can have hope in the middle of that affliction today. Godly patience is that daily discipline of choosing the reality of God's purposes over my perceptions of them. What could a life like that do that believe that in this land of affliction? How might God use you this week to seek, as you seek to demonstrate patience in the midst of your hardship, just like you used Joseph? You know, the works of Joseph affected not only the Egyptians, it says the last part of that chapter, but all the nations of the world that were around at that time came there to get grain because Joseph believed God's word was true. Joseph was holding fast on his promises, not on his situation to change. Do you believe that this morning?